Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We will not be defined by the crisis, but by our response to it. That was what Rishi Sunak said when he set out his summer statement to the House on Wednesday. He promised more money, 30 billion in total, to boost employment and prop up some of those sectors like hospitality and tourism, worst hit by the crisis. VAT cuts, stamp duty freezes and discounts in August so that everyone gets 50% or £10 off their restaurant bills, eat out to help out, we're told. At the same time, however, the furlough scheme is drawing to a close and the effects of easing lockdown restrictions are really hard to predict. Coronavirus has not gone away. So what happens next? What should we make of the sums promised by the Chancellor? Who are the winners and losers? Who will be picking up the bill? And what does this say about the Treasury under Rishi Sunak and how it's working with number 10? Joining me to talk about all this in our virtual studio are Gemma Tetlow, our Chief Economist. Hi, Gemma. Hello. Giles Wilkes, IFG Senior Fellow and a former advisor to Theresa May and Vince Cable. Giles, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bowman. And I'm delighted to have here as well Rupert Harrison, Portfolio Manager at BlackRock and previously Chief of Staff to Chancellor George Osborne. Rupert, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Let's start right away with Rishi Sunak's statement. Gemma, what was he trying to do and did he do it? Well, as Rishi Sunak said yesterday, yesterday's statement was going into the second phase of the government's fiscal response to coronavirus. The first phase was the big rescue package as they shut down the economy. And this second phase is about using spending and tax policy to try and support the economy as it gets back to normal operation and things start to reopen again. And Rishi Sunak said that the focus of their second phase is on jobs, trying to make sure that those millions of people who have been put on furlough during the shutdown go back to their jobs or find new jobs that they can go back to uh, rather than becoming unemployed for a long period of time. In terms of the scale of it, um, normally £30 billion, and that, that includes the £5 billion that Boris Johnson had announced previously for an infrastructure, normally £30 billion would be big uh, for a Chancellor standing up making a fiscal statement, and it, it is in some sense large. However, it is relatively small compared to the amounts of money that the government has been pumping into the economy every month since the end of March when the economy was shut down. And so some of the concerns that have been raised around the package that was announced by Rishi Sunak this week is will the recovery be strong enough for businesses to cope with the removal of the furlough scheme at the end of October? That means they're going to stop getting the sort of £10 billion a month that the Treasury has been pumping into businesses in wage subsidies, will they be able to cope with the loss of that money and in return only getting this uh, promised job retention bonus, which is £1,000 per worker, maximum of £9 billion in total that won't hit businesses' bank accounts until February, provided they keep those workers on through January? Well, he didn't say it was the last word on spending. Indeed, we've got the budget coming in November. Rupert, what do you reckon? What did you make of it? And do you think this is really just an interim payment in the long series of payments on uh, the coronavirus crisis? Yes, I do think it is that. And I think that's probably quite sensible because I think the uncertainty about the future is is so wide and we will learn more month by month as we monitor reopening, as we learn about how much consumption is coming back, as we learn crucially how many of these furloughed jobs are going to be you know, are going to survive and, and be supportable in a kind of more normal economy. So I think it makes sense to have a sort of rolling and updated uh, stimulus profile as that information comes in. In terms of the overall response, I thought it was a fascinating 
uh, I think we learned quite a lot about Rishi Sunak as chancellor in the sense that he has, I think, already demonstrated uh, an ability to uh, break the mold, an ability to to be innovative. He's, he and the Treasury have, I think, moved very fast and in very large scale uh, to put in place things like the furlough scheme you know, from scratch, never done before in the UK. It, it, that's worked amazingly, with uh, apparently without hitch. Was anything um, in the speech a surprise to you? But, but, I, but the, 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 interesting thing, yeah. but the interesting thing is that he sort of, we also saw, I think we do see increasingly in Rishi Sunak, you know, let's not forget he is a conservative chancellor and I think he does worry about the scale of the fiscal problem that he is uh, going to uh, be confronting in, in six months or a year or two's time. I think he is not willing to kind of absolutely put the foot to the floor and just keep on with the kind of max support. I think he's worried about the the fact that the furlough scheme kind of freezes the economy as it as it was. Uh, you know, compared to some other European countries, we are phasing out that kind of support earlier. Uh, and I think that you know, so and we saw you know some surprising innovative announcements like you know eat out to help out and. Um, you know, the VAT cut, the, these are sort of, uh, you know, targeted support for the economy. But he has, I think, s- given notice that he is starting to withdraw the sort of spray gun, uh, you know, large scale, f- indiscriminate fiscal support. And I think that that is the crucial judgment that he's got to try and get right over the next year. And, and of course, he hasn't made it yet. He's just referred to, as you said, some concern about about national finances in, in the medium term. He hasn't made well, it. Well, he has. I mean, he could have done more yesterday. Yeah, I think that's that, that point, is true. You know. Yeah, uh, Giles. Again, what do you reckon? And, and and do you think it will be successful in heading off unemployment? I think it's still very much a holding pattern. And I mean, to slightly disagree with Rupert, I think you don't really learn the character of a chancellor until they've got the tension of both sides of the balance sheet to worry about. And while he will be very rhetorically concerned about the gigantic increases in debt and possibly the deficit going forward, it's only when you see them really having to trade things off in a difficult situation, a normal difficult situation, i.e. how much does this cost versus how much is it, is the benefit that you really understand the character of a chancellor. So I'm still waiting because we've had a really unusual period since that budget in March to now where a lot of normal Treasury thinking has been suspended. And that on its own is incredibly admirable because normal Treasury thinking would not have been helpful during a very, very unusual situation. But if the disease had gone away as we might have hoped when it started declining in April, we might have seen more like a a normal stimulus package and a larger one. I don't think his constraint this time was the affordability because of interest rates being very, very low and stimulus packages are always extremely one-off. It's, as I think Rupert hinted again, the sheer uncertainty means you do not know whether you're firing blanks or not. You do not know whether, for example, you're trying to encourage people to eat in restaurants shortly before everyone gets worried again about the disease, for example. And we also don't quite know what kind of an economy we're coming out into. So he has suspended the judgment for now about restructuring the economy, um, which I think is sensible. We, we well, literally I, do I, not know. Yeah. What- I, I was going to ask you exactly this, and this seems to be one of the really interesting points about it. He's trying to urge people to get back to life as it was, you know, back into the restaurants, back into um, staycations or whatever, back into, you know, going out. Um, whereas a lot of people, have talked about the change of, of lifestyle that coronavirus might have prompted, some of which we might want to hold on to. Which is incredibly speculative. I mean, I do not honestly know whether I'll be working five days a week at home or, or going back into the office. And a lot, of, a lot of people still disagree about that. 
Gemma, what do you think about this thing about whether this represents a rebuilding of the economy or re, re, reshaping of the economy in any way, or is he just um, firefighting, if you like? I'm not sure I discover it's firefighting, but I do agree with Giles that the measures announced yesterday really did duck the question of of taking a view on whether some sectors of the economy need to be helped more through the next few months because the government thinks they have a long-term future um, or whether they're kind of going to more systematically put their fiscal weight behind a restructuring of the economy. Um, other countries, for example, have announced schemes to try and encourage people to purchase electric vehicles, so much more targeted support to try and support uh green car industries and encourage people to um, give their money there, which we didn't see Rishi Sunak going down that route. There was targeted support for the hospitality sector. So obviously a judgment there that that is a sector that has a long term future, uh, but will face problems over the next few years. But otherwise, the support was kind of as in the first phase of the crisis, pretty general. Um, it's a jobs retention bonus that goes to all firms. Um, and the real concern there is that actually a lot of that money is going to go to businesses who would anyway have brought their workers back. Many workers who've been furloughed and their businesses are now able to operate in a much more normal way may not have needed that support. But the Chancellor has obviously made a decision not to try and tailor that any more precisely, not wanting to make that judgment about exactly where um, the greater needs are going to be. I think there, there will be a question as the, the months roll on and evidence comes in of whether the Chancellor needs to do more and whether we start to see that need more needs to be done in, in more targeted areas rather than a lot of this more across the board support, which relies on the market in some sense operating appropriately and uh, enabling businesses that have a future to survive and those that don't to go under and their workers to move elsewhere. Rupert, what do, you, do you think this is a point when the government ought to be, if you like, picking winners, trying to steer um, the recovery and its recovery efforts towards particular sectors? So, I mean, first of all, in terms of what they have done, I think that, that we slightly are underestimating the extent to which they have already made a very big decision, uh, which is if if they took the view that basically life was going to get back to normal and therefore it's just a question of holding on until the vaccine comes in, then you would keep some version of the furlough scheme uh, in the in the form that it's sort of turning into, i.e., a wage subsidy scheme, uh, you would keep that going for longer. I think it is a it's a very significant decision that he's basically said this is going to be phased out by October. That is basically saying we are going to allow the market to determine how many restaurants and hotels are going to survive, and that is what I mean by you know this is in the end a conservative chancellor. He is basically saying, okay, I'm going to throw some money at encouraging firms to hire people back from furlough uh, and you know it doesn't no harm if that some of that is dead weight i'm going to do that but in the end i'm going to call an end to the scheme and that i think is the biggest decision that he's made and he is therefore i think mm. making quite a big call that he doesn't know the future of the economy and he's basically going to allow the market to work that out and therefore he's going to tolerate a quite a big increase in unemployment from those sectors that's why he's focusing an enormous amount on trying to get these sort of apprenticeship and wage subsidy particularly schemes for young people um uh, but I think that there is also a view in the Treasury that if you look at the recovery from the financial crisis, actually the UK was very, very good at creating jobs. Uh, and particularly in those sectors, you know, it was very good at creating jobs in retail, hospitality, leisure. Uh, uh, and therefore, 
I think the view is we don't need to be kind of, we don't need to swing to being kind of max continental European and having a furlough scheme that lasts for a couple of years. We can actually afford to say, okay, let's let the market sort this out. And I think that is underappreciated as a huge judgment that he's made. I mean, of course, I think that that could change if we suddenly get back into a kind of vicious second wave in the autumn uh, as the kind of flu season gets going, then we may need to kind of resuscitate the furlough scheme. But as it is, he's made a pretty, pretty big call. Right, which he could, which he could be, he could be blamed for. I mean, he's had a, a, a rather, um, you know, shining uh, political summer, but he could. The risk for him, I think, is if the UK unemployment profile starts to look worse than the European one. So if we get France and Germany showing really very, very gradual increases in unemployment, which is what we've seen so far, because their equivalents of the furlough schemes are still operating on such large scale. And if the UK starts to look a bit more American, where the, you know in the US we've seen this sort of absolutely shocking increase in unemployment because there isn't really an equivalent of the furlough scheme, although partly through these loan schemes. Um, I think that will be a risk for him in the autumn. And that, that, I think, will therefore be a test, as Giles says, like when the rubber hits the road, like is he really willing? to tolerate that yeah and you spent a lot of time talking and and, uh, and looking at other countries i mean how, do, how does what he's proposed stack up against say some of the, the big continental well countries? in terms of overall size uh the the uk response now looks okay um when you actually look at you know a lot of what the some of these other countries have announced is actually going to be spent over several years it's not all short-term stimulus so this huge german scheme to you know Yes, it's a scheme to support electric car development. It's also a massive bailout scheme for their enormous car industry, which is facing an existential threat. So I think we need to see it in that light. It's it's, not, it's a bit of kind of uh, defense as well as a sort of not so much kind of visionary strategy. But it's not all going to be spent short term. So it's sort of a kind of short term stimulus. The UK actually looks quite large now relative to European countries. It's still less than the US. So the US still is an outlier in terms of monetary policy support, but also short-term fiscal. Of course, the difference in the US is we don't know how long that fiscal is going to last. The way they make fiscal policy in the US is very short-term, uh, and we won't know until a couple of months' time how much of that is suddenly going to disappear in the autumn. A really interesting point. And a quick word on Labour. This was the first big moment at the dispatch box for Annalise Dodds, the shadow chancellor. General Giles, how did how did you um, think she got on? I, I thought they they have to say one thing, which is uh, not enough. I mean, that's what Labour has to say. There's no way they can position themselves on the um on the fiscally prudent side of this debate. So they had to say this is not enough. The government should do more. Sense, yes. Hope, hope that things um, rather grimly go worse, and say you should have done more, and, and try and exploit the existential uncertainty of Mr. Sunak's position. Also, it's a lot easier to sit around calling for restructuring the economy and picking sectors when you're sitting from the opposition benches. You're not the one who get, gets, gets the blame for not being pick, picking the favourite sector. So like the car industry right now is complaining that they're not, they haven't got a good package. It's very easy for the opposition to do that. So you'd expect them to pick the most aggrieved sectors and really go for it. And I think she gave a competent example of that. By the way, uh, a further evidence of that point Rupert made there that he's reverting to sort of more the conventional economic type the fuss around this thing called project birch which was meant to be big investments in um uh in in important strategic sectors for the uk economy which would have been a shift leftwards it's been really downplayed in this package they're now calling it last resort business interventions and kind of sounding almost apologetic about it i think they realize they might have gotten a little too overexcited in their strategic policy making a few months ago. Sorry, Gemma, you were going to say something. I was just say I, I agree with Giles that I think it was a competent performance from Annalise Dodds. 
she was clearly on top of her brief. I mean, that she has the advantage that there have been a lot of economists out in the wider world setting out their views on what the appropriate stimulus and recovery package should look like, talking about the need for income contingent loans for businesses, more targeted job support, all sorts of active labour market programmes. So in a sense, she had a lot to draw on, but it felt a competent performance that she was on top of what the issues are there. As Giles said, not not surprising that a Labour opposition would be talking about the government having not done enough. And clearly, there are a lot of uh, economist voices out there saying that they were expecting more from the government's package. Uh, but I think it was a competent performance from her. I mean, I would say that I think she struggled a bit. Uh, you know, the problem she's got is that Rishi Sunak is the strongest performer in the government and the government's economic response is the strongest part of its you know, yeah. platform at the moment. And Labour have, have had much more success drawing attention to perceived failures elsewhere, elsewhere in the kind of health response and testing and PPE and all these and care homes. Uh, and actually, she's basically at the moment slightly struggling on the economy because, as Giles says, she's saying, well, it's not enough, we want more. But actually, the perception is that Rishi Sunak's done an enormous amount. Um, I think, you know, she she should wisely bide her time and wait and see how things go. You know, I think if things turn down then and unemployment starts shooting up, particularly relative to other countries, then she'll have some material to work with. But at the moment, I think that, that it's actually notable that on the economy, the opposition are struggling to make inroads. I want to throw things forward a few months or so to the problems yet to come and the looming question, how do we pay for all of this and who exactly pays? Let's start with what we think we can see coming. The furlough scheme ends in October and the Chancellor was adamant that it was not going to be extended. And there are other warnings of what people are calling perfect storm moments, the end of January for the hospitality sector when the requirement to keep workers on and uh, the VAT cut ends and spring for the housing market when the new stamp duty freeze ends. Gemma, are these, are these real? Um, perfect storms or just a whole sequence of things uh, for the government to manage? I think there are secrets of things for the government to manage. And as Rupert said, there is scope for them to come back and announce more. Um, But I think the end of January will be a real moment for the hospitality sector. Christmas will presumably be a better trading time, but at the end of January, they no longer have to keep workers on in order to qualify for the job retention bonus. The VAT cut comes to an end uh, for those sectors in the middle of January. Do we at that point see businesses reassessing whether they are viable long term and perhaps starting to lay workers off? Um, I think there is a moment for the housing market at the end of March next year. We, the stamp duty cut will come to an end at that point. There's also a new 2% surcharge on purchases by non-UK residents of UK property coming in at the beginning of April next year. So we're likely to have seen quite a lot of property purchases having been brought forward ahead of the end of March next year. And there may be a bit of a lull then in the property market. At the moment, uh, the Chancellor is presumably hoping that the rest of the economy will have recovered sufficiently strongly by then, that there will be other forms of activity to take up that slack. And I think to go back to the, the question about rising UK unemployment, I think Rupert is right that that's going to be one of the things um, that may start to put pressure on the Chancellor if unemployment is seen to rise more quickly in the UK than elsewhere. I think there's also another issue for the UK where we're a bit of an outlier at the moment, that is, even in countries like the US that have seen big increases in unemployment, that's for the moment, has been accompanied by policies to 
quite radically increase the generosity of unemployment benefits in those countries. In the UK, we haven't done that yet. So high levels of unemployment mean people taking a big hit to their incomes as well. And so I think that sort of combination could put pressure on the government later this year. And what about the thing that we've referred to already? But who, who pays for this? And whether this Chancellor, a Conservative Chancellor, as Rupert's been saying, um, does start to try to do something about that, perhaps in the November budget, perhaps with, with, with tax rises and so on. But how, how should we answer the question, who's going to pay for this? If I can have a go at this, I mean, the trouble is there were still, I mean, if you just put up a toy Excel model of the course of the economy and public debt and deficits and so forth right now, you only need to mess around with two or three variables, critically growth. And you can move from needing to find 50 billion pounds of tax rises in 2030 to stabilise the debt to needing nothing. Um, so it, the emphasis right now on keeping the economy strong and growing fast and critically on a reasonably good pathway once we're kind of in a normal world again. Is, is understandable because if he set it, and particularly if you do worry that setting out harsh future tax rises to bring the deficit under control might have an effect on expectations, depending on your model. So right now, I can I think what we need to hear in the autumn is his framework and his, his way of looking at it, and maybe his medium-term sort of targets and so forth. But actual measures, I, I'm not sure whether we're we're facing the kind of markets that need to actually see. You put you, you you put your money on the table, as it were, as we might well have been facing in other times. That's heavily disputed. But um, so right now, I think we just want to hear his approach. But I wouldn't urge actual measures with dates on them yet. I mean, I think I agree with that. I, I certainly uh, think there's one further consideration that might influence him, which is sort of the political economy of timing of getting permission for difficult measures. But on the on what he on the economics, I think Giles is absolutely right that the uncertainty is still so wide that we don't know. I mean, in a good scenario where let's get let's say the Oxford vaccine is up and running by December and by early next year everything's back to normal, we'll be in a very, very rapid boom globally, I suspect, because there's an enormous amount of stimulus in the pipeline. Life will be getting back to normal. And this will turn out to have been largely a one-off cost, uh, which at these kind of interest rates uh, is going to be pretty low and therefore we'll be carrying more debt and you know go, go, governments will seek to gradually bring that down very very gradually over time but probably most we won't really notice in a very bad scenario where it turns out a vaccine isn't really possible the virus mutates immunity isn't long lasting that just is a much much more expensive and bad scenario for the world and that's where you get very very big holes in public finances and a huge dilemma for governments where they're having to support very weak economies uh, for a long period of time i suspect we will therefore get into you know monetary financing via various intermediate steps like yield curve control and we'll end up basically paying for it by not paying for it i.e we will gradually print the money to pay for it and we'll uh, you know, hopefully one day some combination of tax and inflation will will make it disappear um so that, that, sounds, it, complete, that sounds completely plausible uh, rupert but you well, say, both, but both you, of the, the problem is both of those extreme scenarios are plausible you know and so yeah. therefore we can't possibly know what yeah. is what needs to be done now i just think the one thing that might influence rishi is Sunak is that uh, you know it, it's very difficult that you're know, getting particularly getting conservative MPs to vote for and support difficult measures is difficult uh, and therefore he might want to use the sort of moment of crisis to get permission for that so I just think it's possible that he might in the autumn say I am now announcing and crucially gonna trigger votes mm. on some difficult future tax rises just because he's worried that in two years time it'll be two years to go for an election and suddenly the politics of doing that might be a whole lot more difficult.
All right, but from the sound of it, you don't think it's likely that uh, there will be um, another round of what the government absolutely does not want to call austerity. And you, you were, of course, part of a government that brought in a, a lot of cost-cutting measures. We just don't know. Look, in the bad scenario, then at some point we have to cut our cloth to fit our, you know, the, the scale of our economy and we'll have to reallocate a lot of jobs and there will be a long period of spending restraint if we are to try and uh, stabilise debt to GDP ratios or we'll just... Yeah, I don't know to what extent actually just printing the money and ignoring all that is possible. But uh, so there will be some difficult decisions at some point, I suspect. But uh, it's just so soon now to try and put a scale on those that it's probably not even worth it. And Gemma, you've written some terrific papers for us about um, calling for wide ranging reform to the tax system. Do you think Sunak is going to embrace that? So, so I think there's a possibility that even in the sort of most positive world that Rupert painted, that the economy does bounce back strongly. We may come out the other side of this with the public taking a different view on what size and shape of state they want. And even in that world, you may end up, if if that means more extensive public services, more spending on the health service, more spending on social care, for example, perhaps a more generous social safety net. Even in that good scenario, you would end up needing tax rises to match that kind of greater ambition for what the state would be delivering to people. And so I agree with Rupert that there may be a number of reasons to think that the political economy of this works out, that Rishi Sunak wants to use the opportunity of this big crisis and the big sort of assessment of everyone suffered, the state has helped to kind of get support for reforming bits of the tax system, both bits that have been problematic for a long time, but have been really hard to do anything about, and potentially address the question of, if we want a larger, more extensive state, how are we going to pay for that? And how can we get tax rises through Parliament to do that? And that's in big contrast to what we've seen the Conservative Party going into elections um, since the financial crisis. committing not to raise any of the major rates of um, tax, which has been quite problematic and tied Conservative Party's hands in terms of actually making sensible changes to the tax system. All right, and as we just come to wrap up this, this second section, uh, Giles, I was wondering your, your thoughts on um, about, about levelling up, I mean, which had been a part of the government's agenda, a huge part of the government's agenda, which you've been writing about, and whether you think that that is going to surface from this. Um, and indeed, whether you think, just following what Gemma's just said, whether you think this still feels like a conservative economic platform? Uh, well, I think conservatives are famously flexible in managing to define as conservative whatever seems sensible at the time. I mean, I mean, the last thing you need to be is ideologically fixed at a time like this. So if spending oodles of money on infrastructure all over the North to, uh, to try to reverse centuries-long inequalities is what is called for electorally, then you, you will find that it is conservative to do so as well. Um, so I'm, I'm not so worried about that. I think you, there'll be lots of think tank pamphlets written about the exact definition of conservatism or, or liberalism, or whatever. But I think levelling up will remain a really important phrase in lots and lots of government documents. I do not think that there has been any particular intellectual progress in the last 20 years dealing with the issue of what do you do when an area is lagging and the private sector is sending signals saying we don't like going to that area because very reasonable and intelligent people can say opposite things. Some will say putting more public money in will crowd away the private sector and others will say it's public money you need to bring it back in. I've heard those arguments around the cabinet table making precisely those opposite points to conservative ministers. So I I think there will be a lot more spending on it. It will take 
five, 10, 15 years before we know the effect. But most of the studies suggest it's really, really difficult. You cannot point at many examples of successful regional rebalancing policy to build off. There's a lot of optimism in this government. And they're going to use a lot of it on this levelling up. Now to our third section, which is about Rishi Sunak himself and what kind of chancellor he is and how he's getting on with number 10, a famously difficult relationship for many chancellors and prime ministers. There aren't many ministers, I have to say, whose stock has risen during the crisis, but he is one of them. His personal approval ratings have risen, though, as we've been discussing, it does help when your job is to dole out huge sums of money. And he's uh, climbed very fast. He was elected to parliament just uh, in, in 2015 and now, of course, became chancellor in February. A whole vein of commentary at the moment suggesting he could be a future prime minister. Gemma, do you think, um, how's he doing just in this way of managing the job of Chancellor? I think he has managed it extremely well. If we sort of looking at how he's performed during the crisis period, it's somewhat hard to believe actually that he only became Chancellor back in March. Uh, Was it the end of February? I forget now. Um, I mean, he'd obviously been Chief Secretary to the Treasury before that, so had some insight and knowledge of how the department worked um, and how to work with civil servants there. But he has rightly received a lot of praise for the way that he has put together packages of measures, been quite responsive um, and iterating on those measures through the crisis period um, and now come up with uh, policies for the recovery phase. And I think, as Rupert said, um, I think there's a, a sense and a belief that if more is needed and the evidence shows that, that he will be willing to come back and do more later on. Um, so I think overall very positive. If if he's had a stumble, it was probably the £180 coffee mug incident last week in his uh, staged budget photograph. One columnist this morning is saying that she wants one given how much tea she throws away. But uh, yes, that went down probably even worse than uh, George Osborne's um, Byron burger. I assume it's been quite a good uh, boost for sales of those coffee mugs, but um... not, not the kind of consumption they were after. Rupert, what do you reckon? How's he doing? I can tell you that George was very annoyed that he got so much stick for a Byron Burger and Rishi seems to get away with a £180 coffee mug. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, look, I, th- I agree. I think he's doing extremely well. Um, he is you know, pr- very uh, clever, competent. I know that Treasury officials rate him very highly. Uh, I think he has you know, got an unusual combination of a sort of sensitivity to how to communicate in difficult times like these, Uh, combined with a a kind of work ethic and an ability to kind of drive through things that he wants Uh, you know by all accounts you know the the furlough scheme is you know in large part thanks to him just repeatedly saying no that's not fast enough it's not quick enough it's not good enough let's keep going you know just pushing and pushing not in an unreasonable way but just being you know demanding knowing what he wants understanding the urgency um and i think you know all tribute to the to the to the treasury and hmrc and the the civil service machine that kind of rose to that challenge but i think as a you know an unusual achievement for the british government to put something together like that so quickly and for it to work so well and so that's you know not just rishi but the whole system working well i think that he um, he clearly stands out at the moment in the government. You know, uh, in, in normal times, that would lead to tensions because the prime minister would be thinking, hmm, my chancellor is shining a bit too brightly. Um, I don't detect any of that, I have to say, in his relationship with Boris Johnson. I mean, who knows? You know, we're not privy to their 
private thoughts and conversations. But, you know, when you watch Rishi Sunak delivering his statement yesterday, you know, uh, Boris Johnson is there sort of smiling like a sort of proud uncle that his, you know, his, his sort of protege doing so well. Uh, and Boris Johnson must be feeling extremely happy that he um, sort of managed to manoeuvre Rishi Sunak into the job. We just stop on that for a second, because uh, Sunak became Chancellor, of course, when Sajid Javid quit uh, over number 10's number 10's attempts to install its own special advisors in the Treasury. Do you think he's got more uh, independence than Javid managed? Um, I think time will tell. Uh, you know, who knows? Uh, you know, Rishi is, I think, quite close to the number 10 team. I don't think that he... Uh, there's no indication at the moment that he's sort of bridling under number 10 influence. Um, and he's pretty aligned with them on many things. You know, I think it helps enormously that he's a, a sort of strong Brexit believer. I think that he, that sort of aligns him quite naturally with a lot of the key figures in number 10. Um, and at the moment, he, yeah, that, that is all working fine. You know, there tensions inevitably may come along down the line uh, around the sort of difficult decisions we've been discussing about how how much unemployment can you tolerate, how much spending is sensible, uh, is he willing to continue throwing money at levelling up, yeah, even if these you know schemes aren't are more political or not well designed or not well tested, you know, all of these things will 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 come up in due course. Well, uh, you were working for uh, George Osborne, uh, obviously, um, and helping him shape what he did. Would you have wanted to report to Number 10, to a Dominic Cummings-like figure on the, the kind of nature of ideology? I don't think that it's fair to say that Rishi Sunak reports to Dominic Cummings. I think that he now has enough no, credibility and profile. Oh, as an advisor, right. Um, I mean, in a sense, I did. I, I think that the, not to Dom Cummings, but to you know Ed Llewellyn and David Cameron. You know, yes. and that was a bit different because we were really one team and had always been one team, even in opposition. You know, we all sat in the same room, and there were very, very rarely you know serious disagreements between George and David that caused any problem. I mean, actually, whether to have a referendum on the European Union was probably the main one. Um, but so I think that was quite different. But and and maybe they have re- managed to recreate actually a little bit of that. Uh, so I would look a little bit more kindly on these arrangements. Like the people who are working for Rishi in the Treasury are very uh, tightly bound in with Number Ten. And at the moment, I mean, I may be missing something, and I'm not there. But uh, it's hard to detect signs of tension at the moment. So I think it's working pretty well. Uh, you know, it's just uh, it's early days. Mm. And Gemma, do we have a sense of his ideology as Chancellor? I, in many ways, I'm not sure we do because it's been such an unusual period that he's had to respond to. And as we said earlier, in a sense, he hasn't really had to do the difficult things that Chancellors normally need to do, which is to balance the books, figure out what you're willing to spend money on and where that has to come from. Um, I, I think we do have some sense of it from the measures yesterday. So most of his focus being on expecting and hoping that the market will send the right signals and the government not being too interventionist in trying to pick winners. Um, but I think it's it's early days and we haven't really seen the more difficult questions that might show where his priorities lie. If I may, I mean, I think we've seen a few things. I think that we can, the interesting thing is he's a new generation of Conservatives and he's also very intellectually self-confident. And I think that that brings an interesting contrast in the sense that he's very, you know, an older generation of Conservatives would have been instinctively worried about things like printing money and big fiscal stimulus. And, you know, he is not like that. He's a very much a kind of creature of the post-financial crisis age. He understands the kind of economic necessity of those things. Um, 
but but at the same time, I don't think we should let that lull us into the sense that he's not, you know, uh, that he doesn't have a sort of strong conservative instinct. I think he does. I think he is someone who is instinctively pro-enterprise, instinctively distrustful. Ironically, he does, I think, have that kind of distrust of government intervention, despite the fact that he has engineered some of the biggest interventions the economy's ever seen because of the necessity of the moment. I think you'll still find that he is quite a conservative at heart and uh, therefore i think that that will show through i think as as the as things normalize all right good good point but Rupert, i have to ask you um you know we're all sounding very relaxed now about the government borrowing uh, a great deal of money um but interest rates were low 10 years ago um is it ideology that's changed you know could could 10 years ago uh the government have taken a much more relaxed approach to uh to borrowing money and therefore not have pursued um, cost cutting in the way that it did. Well, I think that there's no. I think I think that with different circumstances, mainly rather than ideology. I mean, I think we have learned some things, but mainly it's different circumstances. First of all, timing. So fiscal consolidation after the financial crisis didn't really start until first of January two thousand eleven. That was when VAT went up, and then new budgets really kicked in in April two thousand eleven. So that's more than two years after the start of the recession. So if you throw that forward, that means that we you know difficult decisions might start to be needed in summer two thousand twenty two. So like we're still very very early in this recession process uh, for, for those things to be thought about. Secondly, I think the, the, the world has changed. You know, central banks uh, not only have global interest rates now declined basically to zero everywhere in the developed world, uh, but central banks have crossed a pretty important Rubicon over the last few months, even if they feel a bit uncomfortable about it. And they are effectively now standing behind uh, uh, finance ministries. They are We have an explicit or implicit yield curve control, really, from central banks guaranteeing low interest rates for foreseeable future. Uh, and it's very hard to see what could change that. You know, really, the, the only risk down the line that could make it all unsustainable is if we get some serious inflation and then central banks are forced to tighten and we get steeper yield curves and rising financing costs for governments. But it's very hard to see where that's going to come from, personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that the world has changed. We're at a very different time and so, you know, I think that none of those things were true in 2010. In 2010, the expectation was still that interest rates would gradually normalize. You know, we, still, we'd take, we had 10-year gilt yields and 10-year treasury yields at the time were both over 3%. Um, and there was a perception that actually normal, normal service would resume and therefore you did have to get on top of deficits. And that was a very widely shared assumption, actually. It wasn't just a kind of conservative ideology. It was a coalition government that did it, supported. Yeah, it, we, even the, Labour, the outgoing Labour government had put in place a consolidation plan. The, the difference was over speed and scale and, nat- and sort of implementation. Uh, so I think that it, we are in a very, very different world and we're, and we're at a very different phase. Gemma, new world, you agree? I think just to add to what Rupert said, it's, it's worth remembering that the aftermath of the financial crisis was actually something like the bad world that Rupert painted earlier for this crisis, which is that it was a shock that revealed that actually UK economic growth was going to be permanently weaker than we thought it was going to be. And therefore, the kind of expectations we'd had for what the public, what the state could spend, given the tax system, turned out to be unsustainable. And that was what necessitated the decade of adjustment on the fiscal position. And the Conservative and coalition governments chose to do most of that on spending. But that was what drove that decade of austerity was that actually the economy would just perform so much worse than we had expected. If this crisis turns out to be a pure short term shock, and so the fiscal impact is just we do a lot of borrowing this year, but then that can quickly go away as the economy recovers and we get back onto the growth path we had before. 
that that sort of shock doesn't necessarily require the same sort of fiscal consolidation um, as we had post-financial crisis. If, on the other hand, we end up in the, the worst outcome that Rupert painted earlier, so permanently weaker economic growth, then we are likely to be sitting here in a few years' time talking about how do we actually do that adjustment, either permanently raise taxes or cut spending to kind of cut our cloth to fit that world. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Okay, well, okay, with that vision of a new world, we're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, but it's not going to be our last word on it all, but it is for now. That is going to be the end of this week's Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Giles Wilkes, Gemma Tetlow, and Rupert Harrison. Thanks for being with us. And thank you all for listening at home. If you want to hear more IFG work and discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. Next week, I'll be in conversation with Annalise Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor. Do get in touch via Twitter or email with questions. And you can listen at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave us a review. You can find all our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. There are still a few weeks left until August when we can, all if we want to, enjoy our discounted trips to restaurants. But remember, IFG content is all yours for free. No vouchers needed. And there's a lot on the menu. I'm sorry, a few to choose from. With that, have a good weekend. Bye.